You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maurit Siebert, and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we focus on helping you build safer and better performing portfolios by including trend following, and where we do our best to answer all of your questions. As usual, let me stay start by saying good morning, Jerry, and good morning or good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hi, good afternoon, Niels. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, guys. I don't know about you guys, but to me, it felt like the Fed surrendered this week and this latest FOMC meeting could well have set in motion a race to the bottom with the ECB currently in the lead, but the Fed and the BOE are gaining fast. But um, whilst the Americans and Europeans are looking for inflation and higher yields, Argentina seemed to having no problem in this department. I saw that rates this week went up to 65.76%. And inflation rose to a whopping 51.28% year on year. And in the futures and markets, uh, we also had a pretty exciting week, a 40% surge in lean hog futures prices, which are now up 70% this month, with the VIX also putting in a pretty good showing with a rise of 24.3%, which kind of leaves all the other markets looking relatively calm if they only move by 2 or 3%, I guess. But of course, most Commentators will be focusing on stocks drifting lower this week, which reestablished the race for new lows in yields, at least in Europe. So with that in mind, let's jump into it. I know it's been a busy week for you, Moritz, on the travel front, but hopefully you've got a bit of an overview as well, how um, how the portfolio do, uh, evolved while you, were, while you were traveling. Yeah, it was a pleasant week because I um, made money. So up about three percent, but really it's uh, it's been only driven by the bonds. Um, you know, boons, JGBs, of course, T nodes. You know, across the maturity curve, all the U.S. bonds actually gotten a bit longer there, uh, also. But you know, just made lots of money from that long position, which we th- I think we all hold uh, in our portfolios, and. Um, now, of course, some some movement on on the currencies, you know, back and forth, equities up then down. Um, so net net, yeah, they you know fluctuations, but uh, no real considerable net PL from that. I can only say, yeah, bonds, bonds, and bonds. Um, but good week. There seems to be a pattern here, more it's establishing. I remember when you went skiing, you had a phenomenal week, and now you went somewhere else and you had another phenomenal week. Yeah, I have to be out the... of the country. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, wonderful. Well, I mean, completely agree with you. Strong week on our side as well. Uh, Definitely driven by by the fixed income side, uh, no doubt. Uh, the troublemakers, um, you know, 40% in a week in lean hogs, um, you know, when you're short, that doesn't sound very nice. Um, but I think it's it kind of highlights another important feature, I think, of what trend following does and, and certainly if it's managed uh, properly. And that is um, small bets. I mean, Jerry says it a lot. And uh, I think this is another great example that you can have 
you know, very strong adverse price moves against you, yet it doesn't really cost uh, that much and certainly didn't do much to dampen the uh, the joy of, of all the uh, other markets and so on and so forth. So overall strong week, but definitely, um, you know, losing a bit on the hawks. Um, and, and currencies, the yen and the uh, Swiss franc, I think it was for us this week, was... Um, a bit challenging um, and of course with everything that's going on politically in Europe um, and monetarily in terms of the um, news we get from um, the Fed and, and so on and so forth um, and, and, and the VIX I guess shows this uh, to some extent you know a 24% rise uh, this week even though it is a volatile market just seems to me like 2019 is, is, is you know has started off on a on a note where general volatility and ideally a little bit more directional volatility is is creeping back uh, to the markets which is generally something we we have been waiting for for a while of course comes straight after we saw the article in Bloomberg a few weeks ago ago uh, calling trend following a failing strategy kind of funny that we sit here three weeks later and and all of these things are happening in the markets so uh, yeah but great week um, on our side as well how about you Jerry yeah, I agree with all of that, and it's nice to see a little bit of um, diversification pay off and correlations reduce a little. I think the currencies, I can see myself uh, maintaining some European shorts and getting long in some of the other uh, markets, so that's nice. Um, vicious sell-off in the grains, and they rallied a little bit this week, so no good. But I think that uh, it's all about hogs for me, and... Uh, great market it's not correlated with not even the cattle too much i don't think they're that correlated i trade them as if they're not so uh, yeah hogs were a great mover and a, a couple of good lessons in there as well which we can get into and this relates to the tweets and stuff but uh yeah how did you handle hogs is a very very good interesting uh way to evaluate your systems and your trading this week I think that's true, and I think we should definitely uh, share some of the insights uh, on that. And I com- completely agree with you. I mean, as I, as I mentioned, we lost a bit of money on on hogs. We made um, you know more than half of it back uh, on on cattle. So, yeah, diversification. 101, so to speak. So uh, why don't we just jump into some of the tweets? I know there's a, some really interesting topics um, that uh, you tweeted about and some of it also relates to the questions we have this week. So why don't we just spend as much time as we need to um, to get into the details? Sure, there's a couple of good ones. Um, I think what I liked the most was I just was sort of reading and I saw that um, one that was a paraphrase it because I couldn't really find it. But it was something like, um, never buy a stock. You know, people are stock-centric, but I take it to mean any, you know, any market. But never buy if the stock is down a lot and never sell if it's up a lot. So, um, so I feel the opposite on that. You know, I think, unfortunately, that's, it's really a bummer that some of the really good trades really are hard to get into. And if you're kind of waiting, uh, you know, we want to be sort of trend-following long-term, but we have some trend-following choices to make during the day as well. Are we going to buy those hawks? I mean, they're getting close to limit up for the second or third days. And my system says buy, but maybe I'll nuance this a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully it kind of sells off a little bit because I don't really want to buy the high of the day. Uh, and so I think that's just a disaster waiting to happen. You need to be happy or go with that strong trend and say, something's going on in this market here. And if anything, uh, 
speed it up a little bit. I wouldn't be adverse to a little discretionary move where my system's not quite long. It's getting close almost, but then this market is just skyrocketing. So um, I'm going to put that trade on as hard as it is. And as you know, who doesn't prefer to buy a break and sell a rally? I definitely do. I just, it just doesn't work. Um, and it's reminded me a little bit of the Italian bond trade last year, which didn't turn out to be uh, a big trend, but it, the open profit was significant. And if you dilly-dallied around on that thing, you were going to um, not get it and, and have a tremendous slippage. So I think uh, contrary to resisting a buying strength and selling weakness intraday, for, for instance, uh, I want to put something in my systems that say, speed it up. This is getting out of control. I need to get this position on. Uh, forget this idea that um, as soon as I get my fill back, it may be a lot lower or lower. So I think that's a very good lesson. Don't be afraid to chase these markets aggressively. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because it it came, it comes a little bit on, on the back of what we talked about last week, the tweet from Zero Hedge who basically said trend following is the most, I can't remember the words, use, useless strategy, you know, why would you buy when other people are buying and sell when other people are saying as, as, as selling as your as your motivation? But but that's exactly what we want. I mean, uh, you could kind of turn it around and say, why why would you sell if if everyone else is buying? I mean, it tends to be a reason for that. So yeah, but of course, uh, the beauty of all of this is that there are so many different ways of uh, harvesting profits in, in in the markets, and 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 that's great. We just happen to believe in in this one um, and uh, but it doesn't mean that other things can't work and, and the other thing that's kind of funny about um, if we're brutally honest which I think we are on this <laughs> in our conversations uh, every week and that is um, people might think uh, when they hear us talk about how you know Hawks were up 23% uh, the week before this week and 40% this week and 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 then the three of us were talking um, prior to pressing record and we're saying do any of you know why hogs are moving up? And and kind of none of us really knew why what you know what's happening. And I've been trying to Google this while we've been uh, to, uh, you know talking, and uh, haven't quite found any, any particular reason about it. So uh, yeah, we don't have to know every single detail just to you know benefit from from the price move. Yeah, but it's important to just as Jerry said to get into those trades and and take them. Yeah, uh, regardless of how hard it is. I mean. You know, one of the things maybe you want to look back on is Palladium. Palladium has this very nice uptrend. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been on that trend, I mean, we probably are on that trend and we're long. But if you haven't been long, then looking at that chart and getting long now is uh, a very difficult thing to do. But it's the right thing to do. Mm. It's definitely not a short. Yes, I think it's worth it's worth reading the tweet as well. So uh, I saw some trading advice somewhere that read, never buy a stock just after a big rise or sell after a big drop. And so, of course, I say I love buying after a big rise and selling just after a big drop. It's the conservative thing to do. And everyone hates doing it. Me as well. Uh, do the hard thing. Uh, beware of never. Beware of absolutes. And trade without emotions. So I think there's a lot of great stuff there. It's not buying those hogs and wanting for a pullback is purely emotion. There's a just a tendency for everyone. You don't want to buy the high of the day or you know, you want to get a little bargain and then I'll become a long-term trend follower. Um, we used to have a saying, you know, do the hard things. Trading is hard. It's emotionally, psychologically hard. You know you're on the right spot if you are doing things that kind of uncomfortable. 
Later, I tweeted, uh, higher is better. And higher is better, and that was another turtle saying back in the day, but higher is better because, only because you may not do the trade and it may, you may avoid a loss and maybe more trend in some situations can be a juicier trade. But it's, it's not like buying higher is only cost. Uh, on a successful trade, if you look back, yeah, you know, my longer-term system got in later, I made less money. But uh, as a general rule, forcing the market to show great trend and great strength and discriminate a tad uh, before you get in is okay. But then when it shows you that strength, you just got to say, suck it up and go and uh, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Good lessons, I think, with these examples. And, um, and of course, there's a lot of people who have been talking about uh, also in the media about, you know, how difficult it is to find sustained trends and, and all of those things, a doomsday scenario for the strategy. I mean, as we've all uh, always maintained, at least in our conversation, is this is exactly why you want the diversification of uh, and, and, and include the commodity side, which is harder, of course, if you trade uh, billions of dollars. But uh, for those who don't, um, commodities are a great way to get true diversification in your portfolio. And I think the last um, couple of weeks with uh, Palladium and now with um, Hawks, I mean, they're good examples, good lessons, good reminders. And if you trade with a systematic approach with rules and with prices, um, it sort of allows you to create this incredible diversified portfolio. You can sort of tell yourself, I'm an instant expert in things I don't really know what's happening. You know, I don't really follow right. the hogs. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the temptation, though, I've noticed is for people to, uh, CTAs in particular, trend followers in particular, to say, well, wait a second, when it comes to equities, maybe I, I can do more analysis. I can, and they sort of, uh, try to come up with the different ways and <clears throat> turn their back on their philosophy of all the relevant information is in the price. Let's follow trends. And you sort of can get tempted into this. Uh, there's more data. Let's look at this data. Let's improve the stock trading with trend plus some other things. And so that's, of course, I don't really do that, but I, I do think it's, uh, <clears throat> it's better to less information is better. Uh, yeah. What else? did you see in your tweet stream this week? So there was a Bloomberg article about um, the underperformance of a lot of factors. And the quote I liked was, evidence-based investing has been a bust over the last decade. Everything investors have been doing wrong, according to the evidence, turned out to be right. So I thought that was an interesting twist on um, a topic that irritates me, which is evidence-based investing. And I sort of thought, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms that for most of the people on Twitter, evidence-based investing is uh, owning the S&P 500. It's low cost, uh, active management can't beat it, fees and expenses take away from your ultimate return, stocks always go up. Uh, this is the evidence. But it, there's so much more evidence that uh, a lot of the people who tout evidence-based investing sort of ignore uh, trend and growth and all the all the other factors and diversification and, and things like that. So I thought it was sort of interesting to sort of um, realize that there's a lot of evidence out there that a lot of people are using evidence-based and it's not just uh, along a passive index as it's sort of portrayed on Twitter a lot of the times. Yeah, 
And also, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's funny, evidence-based investing is something that, to me at least, is kind of a more recent term. I haven't really come across it that long. Um, but of course, it's it's kind of interesting how people can find different types of evidence to come to completely different conclusions. But of course, on our conversation with Mel um, Faber a few weeks ago, he his evidence at least had um, guided him to include a very significant part of his portfolio. I think 50% of his portfolio is in trend-following strategies. And uh, it would be kind of interesting to get people with opposing conclusions based on on evidence to, uh, to debate that one, I would think. What else uh, did you get traction on? Uh, well, uh, David Harding had an interesting oh, yeah. interview on Bloomberg. We thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so we like David Harding and we like Winton and we think they're wonderful. Prefacing all my negativity before I launch into my <laughs> joking. Um, but I thought some of it, I tweeted three things. I listened to the whole thing and it was interesting. I l- like listening to him. He talks about trading a lot of stocks now. Right. Not not using trend following uh, on the stocks. 7,000 stocks now. Uh, so that's music to my ears. You know, I, I like the stocks. I think there's a lot of opportunity and diversification there most of the time. But I, of course, use the trend following. Um, and he goes on to say, just applying a futurist trend following strategy to equities doesn't work at all. There's a graveyard of companies that have tried that. I'm not under that illusion. Um, yeah, so it confuses me, of course. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm, <clears throat> maybe a lot of people would say that at the same time, they are, in fact, trading a lot of stock indexes. So, that stock indexes are great with trend following, uh, but the individual components are not. That confuses me. Uh, certainly since 1982, the best trending markets have got to be stocks, at least long stocks. I think the shorts are not as good as the typical commodity interest rate currency short, but certainly I'm a big fan of trend following the individual names, and uh, I think it works pretty darn well. Yeah, I unfortunately only saw a, a summary of the conversation, and 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 of course we, um, you know, uh, David is a very very smart uh, in, investor, and he, um, you know, the conversation I had with him a couple of years back uh, was was uh, you know was was a great privilege to um, to see how he thinks about things sort of uh, in in real time, and 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 we would love to have him come back on on our little series here and and debate some of these points. Um, I, the, the things I took away from it, some of the, the, the headlines I took away from it was that people could, I think he mentioned that people could generally do trend following themselves or do it at home or something like that he, he mentioned. Um, and that, uh, you know, they had become longer, longer term. Um, but even that was, you know, kind of losing the the edge. Um, and I think that's a lot of the narrative when you hear it from people uh, like that with a lot of, uh, you know, respect and credibility in the markets. I think that a lot of investors will take that for given and say, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And from that point of view, you can say, yeah, it makes more sense to be able to say, well, now we are able to scan 7,000 stocks because no one else at home most likely would be able to do that. So that's definitely something you could you could maybe easily argue for should be um, something you should pay for rather than something that in principle, as we as we completely agree, I mean, you can do trend following from from home. Um, it doesn't mean that 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 all trend following is is equal and 
and uh, and and I'm not suggesting that doing trend following from home is going to give you the best results. I think still people who spend all their time doing it and have been doing it for a long time should be able to deliver better returns. But I can understand the the uh, the angle um, that he's taking, but I don't necessarily agree that trend following uh, uh, doesn't work anymore. But as I've said before, um, I think in their situation, it may not work as well. And I think uh, to a large extent of it, I still think it's driven by by size um, and 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 how it's harder to get diversification um, through some of the smaller markets. I mean, we've been talking about it this week. You know, uh, lean hawks. I mean, you can't trade thirty billion or twenty five billion and have a meaningful position in lean hawks or palladium for that matter, or et cetera, et cetera. So. I think it makes sense for them to do what they're doing, um, but I don't think it takes anything away from what we we do on our side. What about you, Moritz? Uh, did you catch any? Uh, yeah, I guess you did catch the interview uh, while you were traveling, maybe. Yeah, it was one of the uh, things I watched on the airplane and then shared it with you guys. Um, I, you know, like the interview in general. Uh, as Jerry said, we uh, we like David Harding. The the thing that you know, I. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of like, you know, uh, we're thinking about is why did he say trend following isn't working on stocks? Um, you know, it works on the average of stocks, which is a stock index. So uh, why can it not work on an individual equity? Uh, I'm at a loss to understand that. Um, of course, you know, if you, you know, if you look at individual equities and Jerry is the best to speak about that, but you know, there's different things you need to be aware of, um, you know, have a larger sample of stocks or survivorship buyers. How do you, you know, produce total return time series, you know, dividends, tax and dividends, withholding taxes, all of that. Of course, this also applies to stock indices, but most of us, we would look at, you know, futures contracts and then generate a generic time series by rolling them and connecting them you know, looking at the cash equities, um, I just have to approach the thing in a different way. But um, even though I, so I'm not, not, not qualified to, to make the, uh, the final call on that, I'll leave that to Jerry, but very hard for me to understand looking at the thing that trend following techniques or momentum trading uh, is not working on stocks. I, um, I think I have a different opinion on that. Sure. Sure. And I, I agree with what you said, um, Niels, but um, I guess in his shoes, it's it's just hard for him to um, talk about his own firm and the changes that he did without sort of um, essentially harming our business, you know, critiquing us negatively. So sure. we don't want to really say anything negative about him and what they do, and it's just what they do. And they're, I mean, the 15% return that he quotes, an average return and a one sharp, he's out of... Yeah, he's in another league by himself. But it is kind of a bummer that he, that in describing that, he does tar the rest of people who are continuing to be trend following only or pretty much trend following only. And we're all trying to figure out um, <clears throat> this period of, you know, it, or is, is there evidence that uh, even though I think we all agree there hasn't been a, enough large trends uh, to make a definitive. Uh, critique of trend following, uh, but maybe with the trends that we have had, are they are the systematic approaches from medium to long term or whatever? They're they're really failing and not doing what they used to do. Um, so how much of it is just plainly due to that, or to just not having these trends? Uh, so we're all trying to 
figure that out. Uh, and it's, it's really a tough situation for them given that they are so large and they very, cons- they, you know, they had to go this long term. So how do you make money at 25 billion by not participating in the long-term trends, but maybe they do, but then they do something different. Yes. Yeah, if anybody can figure it out, I guess he can. No, absolutely. And, um, and, but you know, I would just look at the bright side of all of this, and that is, you know, when when big industry leaders change course, it allows smaller participants to step up and and because I don't think necessarily investors want to completely abandon uh, trend following, uh, you know, and and uh, so I think it gives opportunity to to the rest of us, and maybe I mean, who knows? Maybe one day they'll take the full step and say, well, if we don't believe trend following really works. Why should it even be 25% of our portfolio? I mean, shouldn't it be zero then? And um, and that leaves even more room for, for the rest of us. But I mean, there is a reason why they're a market leader. So uh, one shouldn't underestimate what they're doing. And um, they just want to do things differently. And, you know, all credit to them. And then he confuses us more. My second tweet was, uh, quote, <clears throat> para- sort of a paraphrase, but I tried my best to get it right. Uh, there is some of our knowledge of trading momentum in futures that is used in our equity trading. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm back to square one now. Right. A little bit, a lot. Uh, maybe it's just as simple as uh, you really can't beat trend as it relates to getting into the market, make the market show some strength, discriminate against you. It's the best way to discriminate on your positions. You can't be long everything, so let's just look at some momentum and strength and we'll get long. But then if we wait around and don't take profits on the way up or fall target or something else, we've just got to do something to protect ourselves from massive uh, chaotic sell-offs when all the too many trend followers are out there all trying to get out at the same time. So I'm sort of trying to game, uh, understand exactly how I would do this. And I just think the options are somewhat limited. Mm. Let's hope one day he'll... He'll come on and explain this uh, to us. It'll be super interesting, really cool if he did. You had one more, you said one more tweet around this article uh, or, or interview? Yep. It's, this is uh, another quote. I still believe trend following will make money in the future, but you can't rely on it. There is too much competition in trend following now. Those who don't innovate are doomed to die. The shift up. And then he, the interviewer says, well, have your new systems, uh, have they done well. He goes, no, they haven't made money either. The shift out of trend following hasn't produced better returns. So yeah, there's the dilemma. Um, but I agree with that. I mean, I, I do think that it's true that you have to keep innovating and, and you know, I think that that, that is true. And, uh, you know, standing still is not a good um, strategy. It doesn't mean that some of the, the core ideas of trend following can't stay the same and still work. But I think you have to Continue to look for, you know, even if it's small, but, you know, constant improvements here and there. Sure. So that was an interesting theme. I actually know that we have a a question. Um, I I know that Marco um, sent that uh, conversation to us. So that's one of our questions, uh, I would say, that we've certainly commented on. I hope you 
um, you know, uh, are listening, uh, Marco, to 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 these comments at least to to answer your article about that. And by the way, if you have any questions uh, that you want to bring up uh, with us, we we love that, and just send them to info at toptradersonplug.com, and we we very much do our best to uh, to debate it uh, the following uh, weekend when we do the recording. So uh, keep them coming. We we very much appreciate it. Yeah. What else uh, got some uh, traction, um, good or bad, in the um, social media area? Uh, this one, uh, I'm not exactly sure what this what this is about, but it's got a lot of uh, interest. Um, uh, it was from um, 20 Craziest Investing Facts Ever. It was a list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first one is gold and the Dow were both at 800 in 1980. Gold is now $1,300, and now it's the Dow's at 26000 mm-hmm. Uh Over the last 20 years, gold is plus 340%. Stocks are plus 208 with dividends. And the takeaway is you can support any argument by changing the start and end dates. <laughs> People love True. that. And it's kind yeah. of funny. Uh, I think uh, CTA trend following, you can, you can say it's, it doesn't work anymore. You just got to choose the right dates. Yeah, very true. What else did you find? So that didn't impress you too, but I guess uh, <laughs> a lot of my followers thought it was kind of interesting. No, 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 but it's true. But it's absolutely true. I mean, I kind of took it as a, as 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 absolutely, you know, kind of a fact, isn't it? That uh, we see how people present their performances, uh, you know, for for the right or wrong reasons, uh, choosing and and it's, but it is actually part of the debate, right? I mean, a lot of what we talk about uh, on in our conversations is the debate and the constant uh, negative. Uh, attack on trend following, but it's really mostly because people are choosing to look at stocks versus trend following or whatever it may be in the last 10 years since the financial crisis. There's no mention anymore about the fact that stocks have gone down more than 50% twice in the last 18 years. I mean, people completely forgotten about it. So again, it's just time frame. Here's another one with time. Uh, I like that. I only found this uh, this morning. After breakfast, one of those odd statistics, it goes, since 1920, whenever the SPX has been down more than 1.2% on Friday, it crashes over 20% on the following Monday, 90, 98% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have a sleepless night, I guess, tonight. Right. <laughs> and I guess the final one is uh, a nice little saying, uh, endless repetition does not make something true. Mm, I like that. But I also think I tweeted that uh, if it is true, endless repetition will make it an incredibly powerful force. And I think that's what we offer to the table. I had some other tweets about how much better models are. The models, they, they're, <clears throat> they are simple maybe sometimes, but they're just relentlessly repeating themselves. Every single situation, they do the same thing without emotion, without a fear and I think uh, that's sort of the heart of trend following is that even if the system that you have is a, not as diversified as you want it to be or not as um, great as you hope it to be one of these days, the, this endless repetition of something that is entirely true that by taking small losses and going with the trend and paying attention only to price, you do have an edge in the markets and endlessly repeating that with proper risk management, not trading too large, uh, is is a powerful force and not to be underestimated 
I got like two or three likes on that. Who cares? It's it was my probably my favorite. Yeah, endless repetition. I think that's yeah, and I think that's interesting, right? I th- and and so this week I've been you know continuing to to read slash listen to to the uh, book that I mentioned before, uh, the um, you know uh, Annie Duke's uh, latest book on uh, on bets and and decision making, um, and I think it's fascinating. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at the decisions that we, quote unquote, our systems make uh, versus what the normal perception is where um, most decisions are, re- are looked upon based on the outcome of the decision, not the decision itself, but based on the outcome. And um, and I think it's a very interesting debate. And I think it falls into what you're saying. You know, we we, we try and make accurate decisions based on data. And if we feel we have a, an edge over time and the stats support that, we should keep doing it. And it's not about whether the decision, unlike a discretionary trader who probably will uh, look at each individual trade they, they do and say, was that a good decision or a bad decision? We don't look at that in the same way. It's not about good or bad. It's about did we make an accurate decision based on the data we had available at the time? So I think it's a it, it's a conversation I'm sure we'll continue with and, and, and maybe one day we can get Annie to come and, and talk about these things. I think it matters. I think it matters for investors in particular. And I think the way the world is becoming more and more confusing. I mean, if you, if you just look at the news flow and it it's really, I mean, in Europe, we have negative rates now on 10-year German bunds uh, this week. I mean, it's difficult to be an investor in this environment. Um I think, especially if you have to base it on fundamentals. And who, who would have thought that six months ago, right? Yeah. Completely different setting again. But at the same time, uh, the bond markets, we were getting run out of our shorts. Yeah. yeah. The bonds were rallying. There were still headlines that uh, the rates are going up. And this happens mm-hmm. way too frequently. It's the media and the press don't look at the charts. They don't, but someone who might is coming to join us next week. Jesse Felder, legendary hedge fund manager turned investor and blogger and so on and so forth. Um, So that would be maybe some interesting conversations we can tie uh, in with what we're talking about today. And I should say and encourage anyone out there who's listening who have some questions uh, to Jesse, by all means, uh, this coming week, send them maybe specifically um, you know, to uh, to address some of of your your thoughts or, or queries about what what he sees or, or what he thinks uh, about these uh, topics. Um, maybe instead of the general trend following topics, which we'll debate uh, on another week, but let's let's focus on the fact that we have uh, Jesse coming on uh, next weekend. Uh, that would be great. So info at toptradersonplug.com is where you send your your questions. Yeah. Anything else, Jerry? You want to bring up? I think that's it. Okay, cool. We've got some questions coming in uh, or that came in during the week. First one is from Michael. Appreciate the question, Michael. I know it's a topic that we probably have talked about, maybe not uh, in this particular way, but let's see how it goes. Uh, Michael writes, uh, volatility targeting and post-global financial crisis returns. Have any of the members of the Systematic Investor Series backtested their actual trades from 09 onward with all time one size fits all position size and if so are there any lessons that can be shared 
So I actually think, Mike, maybe to to start with this, that to some extent, Jerry may be the one who has um, who uses most mostly constant position sizing. I think Moritz, from our conversation, has some ways of adjusting position sizing along the way. Uh, and maybe there's a little bit of that, uh, on, and Jerry could comment on that. And then there's maybe us uh, at Dunn doing it to the most extreme, where we do adjust position sizing along the way. So for me, I can say I don't have any data um, on this particular topic about what things would look like if you don't adjust position sizing. So I have no real value I can add to this question. But maybe you, Jerry, maybe you, Moritz, have some thoughts about this for, for Michael. There we go again with the, the good old volatility targeting. Um, so like I, I think I've said a couple of times on this on this podcast, I'm not volatility targeting in, in, in the way that people think about it, meaning that if volatility changes um, during the time I am in the trade, that I will move my position up or down in response to that. And in fact, it is not a it is not a way of trading that I want to integrate into my trend following trading system. I regard it as an overlay that really has nothing to do with the underlying trend following characteristic. So I'm, I'm trying to stay away from it. And also some of the, you know, it doesn't come without risks. We've said this many times before. You have those low volatility periods, for instance, in um, you know. Well, we, we, we may just look like, look back to last year, February, right? Low volatility, uh, stock markets going up. You have the largest position size, boom, you have the crash. So there are some, you know, very detailed type of things that very rarely will have an, uh, a modifying impact on the position size that I have on. But it's not the, um, you know, the ongoing real life volatility of the trade. Now, as to, to back to the question on the back test. So the, the question is just for me, I want to make sure you can give the correct answer. Have I done a back test that compares the vol targeted position size to a one size fits all position size? What 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 is the one size? I think I think that was yeah, I think that was the question. What what so what is the one size fits all position size in your opinion? Static. Static. Yeah. I think so. I think that's what Michael means. Yeah. So static in terms of okay, so static, but still an ATR-based position or a notional position. Yeah, I'm sure he thinks of that. I think I just think not changing your positions during the trade. I think that's how what he he means. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so I I have not done specifically a backtest for the period 2009 till today, but I have looked at the impact of vol targeting, and um, like I said probably with without having the numbers here in front of me but presumably in the period since the financial crisis with the stock markets you'd have a positive impact through vol targeting i'm not sure that's the case for uh the other sectors or other markets that have uh, oftentimes a different uh um, return volatility behavior if you see what i mean it's it's not you know not like with the stocks all the time um, but what I have found out is that for a longer back test, a longer test starting way before 2009, um, looking at that, I was able to come to the conclusion and, you know, from the basis that I do not want to have that overlay as part of my trading system because very, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you, you're, you cannot make that risk go away. You're moving it from left to the right, but you're not destroying the risk. Um, and it will show up somewhere, 
you know, if, uh, you know, it, it tended in my in my case, it tends to increase the average loss uh, on the trades that I do. That is not what I want. So I just uh, I just leave it out. Cool. Any thoughts, Jerry? It's yeah, it's worth its own podcast. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm not as convinced as to what the question really meant. So because we have, I have had people ask me maybe. On, on this podcast or maybe just in emails that um, or Twitter, um, you don't vol target, but what about don't you size your positions uh, based on ATR? So I'm like, mm. yeah, I do. I mean, you know, so we we size the positions based upon the ATR and we normalize our losses, we give each market the same amount of room and make the losses the same dollar amount. And then uh, once it turns into a profit and the trailing stop kicks in and uh, we ignore the increase in vol, although I don't think that if you have a huge monster profit of hundreds of ATR, and then if you want to tick some off the table as the ATR has increased dramatically, I think that's probably okay. It's not a big deal. It's not like hardcore math, I don't think, but it's, yeah, go ahead. I mean, it's fine. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, and I do think that uh, if you constant Vol targeting or making p positions larger a year after the trade was put on because vol is lower, that I think is not a good idea. Uh, maybe if you just reduce uh, when you have a big profit because vol is a lot higher, that's probably less problematic. Uh, so it's just a lot you could say about this whole topic. And But I agree with Moritz that... Um, it makes your average trade, your average loss larger. You have to trade a little bit larger. You're taking smaller profits. And so not a problem. It's just sort of something that people can't see versus why doesn't Jerry cut back this huge position like everyone else with this huge monster profit? It's open trade and it's driving me crazy. They don't see, well, the average loss that he takes is smaller. Yes. So that's kind of uh, uh, the way it has to go. But isn't the um, but isn't the other side of the coin here is that maybe maybe we're focusing too much on this idea of vol targeting because even if you have a system where you don't change the position size during the trade, if you change your stop, that's another way of managing your risk. You may not manage your risk through position sizing, but you manage your risk through your stop loss anyways. And and therefore, that's just another mechanism. It's not call vol targeting per se, but it's it's just another way of of doing risk management. And and this probably isn't a a, a right or wrong, uh, so to speak. And maybe may, maybe there isn't a big difference uh, if one really did the work and 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 looked at uh, the data. I don't know. I'm just saying that we have to take that into account. I guess. I think there is a difference in the stats. I, I don't want to say there is a big difference. Look the. The point with the the vault targeting also is if if you really you know step back it's like what added value do you really get from having a system that aims to produce a relatively constant level of realized volatility so say the vault target is 10 how much happier are you going to be if pretty much every day you're looking to get 10 10 10 10 10 would your life really change that much if you had 11, 12, 13, 9, 7, 8, 10, 10, 10, 11? See what I mean? It's like, let it fluctuate around that with, with the diversification that we trade in our portfolios. You know, we can dial the risk with the 
initial risk that we're putting on, it's you know we're we're all we're getting to a relatively stable area of volatility anyways i just don't see the point of laser pointing it even more precisely to a very specific level and and doing that causes you know transaction costs slippage trading in and out it's to me it has nothing to do with the trend following style of trading I just, uh, I don't want it in, period. <laughs> I think uh, they, uh, when you do the research, you s- two things pop out. One is you have to be longer term. And plus we have lots of billions in our management. <clears throat> so now we really have to be longer term. Yeah. Now the problem with that is um, those profit, open trade profit gifts, give backs can be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So how do, so the, we sell it as, risk management, but when the trends uh, cr- crash or when the trends are short-lived, they're not a year or two long, uh, it actually starts taking over as a profit-taking mechanism. And clients would love it. Oh my God, they love this stuff. You know, it's it's like the joke of uh, clients prefer private equity because it's not marked to market. Mm. If someone came up with a idea to a, a te- uh, technology where I feel like with my new algorithms, I can value your private equity portfolio on a daily basis, clients would freak out. Get the hell out of here. What are you talking about? I don't want my private equity uh, <laughs> on a daily basis. What, aren't you interested in risk control? No, God no. Uh, I wish all my investments were in private equity. I don't ever want to know uh, these crazy gyrations in my portfolio. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same as Warren Buffett when he says that he doesn't believe in diversification. You should just, you know, do one thing and stick to it. Yeah, so there is lots of reasons to do this. Uh, they sell it. And, and, you know, we used to embrace, I mean, I used to embrace, uh, I don't know about you two, but I used to embrace and how wonderful it was, non-normal distribution, uh, you know, crazy outlier moves, uh, skew, Oh my God, these are great ideas. The world is crazy. Uh, it has crazy moves. We'll lop off the extreme losers by taking small losses and just ride the waves of these crazy moves. They, uh, you know, a lot of the really committed vol targeters, they brag about a normal distribution. We've, we've turned it into a normal distribution. You can sleep at night. So, uh, but then on mm-hmm. the other topic, um, that's something else I think I, dramatically don't agree with, which is, um, so if you're using a moving average crossover to liquidate, uh, exit a trade, I think that, um, that those parameters need to stay the same for the whole length of the trade. So the, as the trend goes up, the moving, you're locking in more profit possibly with your moving average system, uh, to slice and dice the historical, trades to say, well, once a trade gets to be a 50 ATR profit, I'll trade shorter term. If it's a 100 ATR profit, I'll trade even shorter term. That I find just as a big a violation of proper statistics and sample size as cuts and vol targeting. Absolutely. It's a great topic. And, um, you know, I think um, since we do get repeated questions about this topic, it's definitely an important topic uh, for many people. So uh, so it's good to bring it up from time to time and uh, it allows us to uh, 
get uh, to vent some of our feelings about this. Um, Dave from uh, Minneapolis comes here with another question for us, kind of related, but mm, let's go with this. When betting a small percentage on each individual trade, say 0.75% or something similar, there are times when you have on multiple positions and the overall portfolio open risk can get pretty high, especially on a smaller account. For this discussion, I will define open risk as market price um, and down to the stop price. Do the three of you have any guidance on what would represent too much open risk as a percentage of AUM? I'm guessing as one moves from trading 20 markets to 30 markets or so, it may be a good idea to lower the individual trade risk as well as the overall open risk to the portfolio so it doesn't balloon up when many positions are open. So, good question. Thanks, Dave. Moritz, or do you think here any guidance? Well, first of all, like the way uh, apparently the trades are being taken suggests that there is a 75 basis point initial risk, uh, which then, you know, may become a larger risk as the position develops. Um, right. So in our case, or well, in my case, um, the, the portfolio is diversified across many different markets. Uh, I will have many, many losing trades. Of course, you know, some trades with large open trade equity. Um, but, you know, I've I've never had it that, you know, I had all of my positions at the same time being um, in positive territory with very large open trade equity. Now, the, the point here is if you have a, say, a smaller account base uh, and you want to trade... Um, more markets to get a diversified portfolio there, you know, you, you, you may be able to put those trades on because uh, you can put the margin down to initiate the trade. But it is a, um, without knowing the details of, uh, of, of the, the person who asked the question, there is then the risk, of course, that, you know, you will over leverage uh, that account uh, and it just will become too volatile. And, um, you'll you'll increase the risk of ruin so i'm not sure if the 75 basis points here is the right number maybe it should be smaller already uh, um, uh today yeah you probably have some thoughts on this as well jerry um yeah that would be my suggestion 75 basis points seems too uh, too much to risk um it's kind of a complicated subject because you know the the distance that your stop is from the entry 1 ATR, 2 ATRs, 3 ATRs, 5 ATRs, 10 ATRs, this has an impact as well. So if you say, okay, I'll risk uh, 25 basis points, but I'll get out with a 1 ATR stop loss, well, you're just going to generate a lot of 25 basis point losses. So you have to sort of do your back test and say, okay, where is that little uh, nice spot where I should be? It should be you know, two, 2 ATRs, 10 ATRs um, from a sort of back test point of view, you know, what's, what seems optimal, uh, then, uh, set your risk management, but to fit in with that as well, trade small 10 to 20 bips max loss, maybe to start and see how it goes from there. And obviously I don't agree with some of the premises of this question that, uh, risk, that's the risk. That's it. Done. Period. Uh, open trade equity. That's really large. And uh, somehow the question turned it into a negative. No, that's 
that's a positive. Uh, as my open trade profit gets larger and larger and dominates and scares the hell out of me, my risk is getting lower and lower. I'm not going to take losses on all those trades. It's, we're, we're way into the deep into these trends. So my initial concern of the 25 basis points or 75 or 3 ATR loss or 10 ATR loss, whatever the loss is, they're gone. It's nothing. I have no more risk. I have volatility. So you're not going to get me into that, uh, make me uh, change my mind on that. Um, be bold with your profits. That's my new tagline. Tagline, be bold with those profits. Yeah, liberal with that liberal with that open trade equity because it's somebody else's money that you're trading with. Right, and I know that you're supposed to treat it the same kind of. Um, it's sort of like the way that I would prefer to treat the open tra- the the losses as well. I'm making a compromise on the losses. I'm not making a compromise on the open trade profit. I'm going to be bold and liberal. And realize we, we've already stipulated many times that you have to be long-term. What do you think long-term means? It means when you have a crash in Palladium, like on Friday, or the stocks on Friday. You're not even close to getting out. This is where the markets were two days ago. How can you transfer that into, into long-term? So, uh, yeah, you got to be bold and stick with it. And that's what the computer says. That's what the back test says makes money. I think just, uh, I mean, I think uh, what, what you bring up, Dave, is probably something a lot of people um, who um, start out with, with trend following uh, look at. I mean, what's my open lo- uh, sort of profits or what's my uh, potential loss to to stop on a daily basis? So it, I'm sure it's a number people will uh, will come across. And sometimes these numbers can look um, quite large, uh, clearly. Uh, I agree with uh, Moritz and Jerry that 75 basis points Seem could seem like a lot, um, but on top of that, I just want to add. I think also it has to do a little bit with the, what your portfolio looks like. I mean, are you trading twenty very different markets, or are you trading uh, trading twenty quite highly correlated markets? Because I think that also you know should give you a sense of how realistic is it that I could get hit and 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 and, and hit that number. Um, you know, um, I have in my past come across uh, systems where we were monitoring this number, uh, kind of loss to stop on a daily basis. And I've certainly seen it in in the 10, 15 uh, high teens percent without it really ever being hit and therefore just a number uh, to to track. Um, but you, you've got to be careful with uh, lack of diversification. You, you've got to be careful with trading too large for, for each individual uh, trade. So completely agree on that. If I could just say one more thing. It's, it's a complicated subject. And one of the things that I would have to <clears throat> not leave out would be that um, I don't recommend with this large open trade equity uh, to Incorporate it into your new trade level. So don't use it to trade larger. Right. You know, tur- Turtle 101 was we started the year with a million dollars. Our trade level stayed a million dollars the whole year. Mm. So if you're upping your positions or reducing your positions on a monthly basis because of this open trade equity, yeah, you're you're spinning out of control here. Risk what risk your 25 basis points based upon your one million, based upon your ATR hard stop, your, your trading size remains relatively constant for the year or six months and you know at some point in time in the future be slow to incorporate new profits open profits uh, but be very fast to decrease trade level if you're losing 
in material amounts of money. So that's sort of the strategy of money management that I think no one ever talks about is how do you calculate trade level and how is this impacting your current positions? I do know traders who uh, increase their positions monthly or <clears throat> frequently based upon new trade level and how that how is that calculated? Once I put a trade on, I um, have a tendency to have it on for a year or so, I never change the quantity. Never. So I think that is more of a conservative, you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble by the way you handle those questions. Yeah. But you would change it if you get new money into the fund, right? To adjust oh, yeah. for... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that is actually an important point that Jerry brings up there. And, and there are different ways of doing it. We do it differently to Jerry um, uh, on our side. But, it, you know, I think it's a super important point. And then people should um, have that as part of their risk management, um, you know, uh, decision tree uh, as well. How, how do I want to handle that side of things? Very important. Should we move on? I just want to uh, recognize Andrew uh, and say thanks, Andrew, for uh, you made some comments on the Winton article and, and send some uh, thoughts uh, to uh, to Jerry and Moritz and me uh, about, you know, position sizing and how, um, you know, trading large size in some of these smaller markets. Um, but I think we, you know, replied to you um, by email on that particular uh, and and uh, point in our thoughts on that, but I appreciate the um, the uh, information, um, Brian. Brian is back with um, with a question. Okay, this is interesting. Maybe in yeah, very topical actually um, now with lean hogs and 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 uh, and some of the metals. Um, so the question is, how does systematic trend trend trade a parabolic market? like Palladium is now, or Nasdaq in 1998-2000, or Bitcoin uh, a couple of years ago. When there is a pullback sell-off, would a long-term trend strategy be able to sell in time to get good profit? Curious if there might be an exception from normal trend algorithm um, that uh, when there is an unusual rapid parabolic advance. Good question. I'm happy to to um, to to take a stab at, at at that, and I think the answer is uh, Brian, at least from from my point of view and 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 how we see things. Again, I think there is a, you know a very different approach to these things. I mean, I think there's you know we've spent a lot of time, many years actually, trying to better our exits, try not to give back too much of our uh, profits. Doesn't mean that you. Um, should become too short term uh, just because there is a big move. You you want to ride that, and you need to give it room to uh, uh, to make corrections uh, along the way. Um, but I do, and but I do think there are different ways of of handling that without being too short term, but maybe still improving some of your uh, some of your exits. So I mean, it's certainly in in all the interviews I've done over the years uh, on the podcast. I think it's a topic that. And and I don't know if in in fact and and maybe you can tell me uh, Jerry whether you agree with this or not. But I've certainly come across many traders or managers saying that they feel that um, that the exits are really really important. And I know you have the view saying well entries are the most important because you need to take them. I don't think we're 
it's that that's not the point they're making. They're just saying that maybe there's less of a difference into how trend systems get into markets, but where they can make a big difference is that they uh, can improve how much of the trend they can capture. But, but anyways, uh, Brian, I do think that there are different ways of trying to um, have algorithms that automatically in some ways uh, are able to, um, uh, yeah, react is probably the word I'm looking for, react, um, you know, even in situations where you have parabolic uh, moves in, in, in the markets. Um, so, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, something you should consider when designing your trend following system. Moritz, I can hear that Jerry is um, is coughing a bit, so uh, I'm going to go to you and just see whether you have some thoughts on this uh, topic. Yeah, um, uh, great question, actually. Um, so one of the things that I do, and this uh, relates to uh, what I've mentioned uh, earlier on this show, there's there's this feature that I have included in in my system that has a modifying impact on the position size, but it's not volatility or realized volatility in the strict sense of things. But if I have a position on and there is a very rapid move up, say I you know, I bought the breakout and there is now a super rapid move up, which increases um, the, the distance to my stop. If that happens, that move within, uh, you know, during the initial phase, shortly after I've set up the trade, then that will lead to a small reduction, not a cancellation, just a small reduction in the long position that I would have on at that point in time. However, if that trade is one of those trades that I have on since, uh, you know, a year, one of those long-term trades, um, that part is no longer active. So it would it would mean that I will, yep, uh, enjoy that parabolic move up <laughs> and down. Okay, cool. Jerry, what are your thoughts about um, should systems incorporate some features that kind of doesn't, I don't want to use the word focus on how to handle a parabolic move, but kind of automatically takes into account, and I guess sort of uh, different stops um, would probably do this, but is there anything in particular you've come across to handle situations like that like we're seeing in lean hawks and maybe this is the time for us to to talk a little bit about what um what's going on there yeah i think so i think you know at the end of the day our goal is to make money and not to be a purist or have these system represent some sort of uh religious experience for us to where we're gonna let them make less money or create destruction in our portfolio because we're hell-bent on following them. So, yeah, I think you need a rule. We're going to be 100% rule-based um, <clears throat> that uh, sort of says, eh, you know, it looks like my long-term system is not going to perform well with this parabolic move, which I would say is not really platinum as much as it is something like the hogs. Right. And uh, because, you know, I'm not going to give all this profit back. Is it possible? Oh, yeah, it's possible. I looked at some old charts from the 70s and gold and silver. So um, this is the dilemma. We need to be long-term to not get bounced out of the long-term trend, only to see it go right back to the highs, but then we can't give back all the profit that um, is possible, given that the stop is going to be pretty far away. So you need another idea, rule-based. But see, the problem with that is that uh, it doesn't have the sample size as the breakout or moving average exit. 
we trick the markets by going out and doing the back test using the consistent uh, exit, breakout exit, moving average crossover exit long term. And we incorporate, we get into our nets all of these trades that were small winners, small losers, uh, medium sized winners, and then mega wins. And because, and we, the reason we can count all of those is the same sample size is because we, We've created those trades based upon the same entries and the same exits. And it just so happens that some of them were hundreds of ATRs, 1,000 ATRs, but the vast majority were the same, pretty small winners or losers. So once we step out of that and say, ah, I have another exit that's based upon P&L, well, our sample size goes where? It goes to the lows because there's not that many. You know, We don't make money on lots of outliers. There's not a lot. We haven't seen hardly any recently. We make them on the few 5 or 10% of the trades that really go a long way. So by definition, if we're now changing our exit to say, hey, when we have a big profit, whether it's parabolic or not, let's change. It's, it's not math. We're outside of the scope. Not saying we don't do it. We've already stipulated that we will do dramatic money management cutbacks and do, do things to preserve capital. So let's do some things maybe once in a while when we have sort of a system failure that doesn't give back all of the mega profit that we've been in the trade for two years. Now, I have seen situations in using my rules where as soon as I do that, it goes right back to the highs again. <laughs> so it's tough. I mean, it's a tough, tough business. Um, but I will say that um, if you stick by the book, and you use these breakout exits, you know, the 100-day low, the 75-day low, the 50-day low, the 150-day low, whatever your breakout exit or moving average crossover is, within a large range, all of those exits make the same amount of money. Yeah, they're the same. Not on any individual one trade, but uh, they are the absolute same. If you get too short-term, you'll make a lot less. Maybe too long-term, you'll make less as well but in that uh, real sweet spot. So in order to make the exits very material and meaningful and, and way more important than everything else, you have to get away from the sample size approach, which is handling all the exits the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope that was useful. Brian, great question. Thanks very much for, for this. And I should also give a shout out, of course, uh, and I think we all do really, um, we do appreciate the nice comments uh, a lot of you share on, on Twitter uh, about the podcast and I saw one this week and it's my bad that I, I haven't written down uh, who it was from but there was someone who who actually said you know already written down 400 takeaways from the the conversations that we've had in the last six months uh, and I thought that was really nice so we we appreciate that uh, speaking of someone who um, uh, takes very detailed notes uh, I can only say uh, when we do these conversations uh, is George and George has uh, come back with a few more questions I might only do uh, one of them uh, today George we'll, we'll have plenty of time uh, in the coming weeks to to do more but I had uh, not realized that we actually had quite a few questions all, already but let's see how we go so George writes in uh, in a few episodes episode 3 and 10 You've all hinted to the commandments, Jerry's words, of trend following. What are these? So what should we say are some of the commandments, quote unquote, that we, we like to, to think about uh, as being, you know, pretty fundamental to how we approach 
trend following. Who wants to start? There's a, there's going to be a long list here. Yeah. I would just say they're different probably for everybody, but... Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure if there are 10. No, no. But I mean, we, we I think we all agree, you, you know, you need to do the trades. You need to, you know, have the discipline. You need to have diversification. You need to take small losses and, and let the, the winners run, um, you know, as, as, as some of the fundamental things that we we all um we all believe in very strongly trade all the markets the same way yeah. trade the longs and shorts the same way yeah um don't overrule your system mm. yep yeah. yeah endure the pain of the gain learn to love your losers i think that's one of jerry's uh... love your losers <laughs> all of those i'll be aware of the fact that you will have these drawdowns which last long but um they can recover really quickly it's it's a hard trading system that requires you to stay steadfast and uh and not you know um change the system change the rules trade something else when you are in a drawdown it's you know that's the testing period where you have to stick with what you've developed develop something that fits you and not somebody else hopefully your clients too and they will like it but first and foremost it has to be a system that you can follow uh, that you don't, uh, you know, trash um, uh, when you are down. Yeah, and I think also um, one thing that we all share, and that is just, uh, you know, time frame. It has to be long term. I mean, you can't uh, evaluate these things on a monthly or even yearly basis. Um, and so, so that that would be certainly one more thing I would add to that. What about you, Jerry? Any anything we can add to the? Well, maybe something real, with less agreement. Uh, would be a, a fixed universe of markets. Don't change your markets. I think that um, it, we all need an evaluation of how consistent and disciplined we are. And we can be very adamant that I am the, the most disciplined and consistent. I follow my system all the time. However, if I'm getting uptight about certain markets, taking them out of the portfolio, putting them back in the portfolio, I think the math gods are like, no, no, no. That's just another form of being inconsistent. And, and uh, you paid your price on these trades, on this trade that you no longer, this market you no longer like. You've had a bunch of losers in a row. If it's in your portfolio, you know the next one may be a big winner. So take it. Mm. If you kick it out of the portfolio, the next one may be a big winner, but you've kicked it out. So, oh, it's okay to kick it out permanently. Uh, but uh, I think the fixed universe is an underrated commandment. Mm, yeah. Well, at least, George, that was some. Uh, George has another question. Um, he says, Moritz <laughs> strongly dislikes a simple trend system on the S&P 500 alone. Map Faber's research implies a simple system on the S&P 500 would beat a buy and hold. Um, please discuss. Yeah. I don't know that you disagree with that necessarily, do you, Moritz? No, I don't. I mean, it's like, uh, I. the thing here is, um, if, you know, you develop a trading system for one market, mm. say, you know, a Golden Cross 5200, whatever your choice is, right? But you only apply to that market, you will have a very limited sample size. That's the issue I've got with that, right? Maybe you're trading that in a um, long neutral way, 
And then you look at the S&P 500, that's one market over the past 20 years. Uh, the outperformance really stems from the fact that there were um, two, three major events that got you out of the market. And you're dependent on those, right? There's nobody here to say that they will occur going forward or won't occur going forward. I'm, I'm not making the argument. My point here is, if you want to develop a trend following trading program system, it really should be for a portfolio of markets to get the benefit of diversification, and especially to increase the statistical body here, you know, every market that you add to your uh, portfolio, and you apply exactly the same rules as Jerry just said a minute ago on the longs and the shorts, etc, etc, then all of a sudden you get more statistical observations, a greater sample size that will tell you something about the stability and the robustness of that system. That's information that you cannot get from one market. And, and so, you know, I'm not just trading equities. I think there's, uh, you know, obviously we think that there's so much more to gain by adding all those other markets and trading them the same way. So I really don't see the point of this Here's the one trend following system on one index, which happens to be a US average of stocks. Exactly. And it's so, yeah. And in other words, I mean, you're not saying that you couldn't make a better return with a trend following system on S&P yeah. if you're comparing to a buy and hold. I agree with that completely. Yeah. Um, let's just keep going with George's questions. There's only two more. Jerry talks infrequently uh, once every year or three. George does really know what you talk about here, um, Jerry. <laughs> he, he keeps track. Reducing risk across the board in response to high volatility risk. Is this built into the system? If not, why not? Yeah, well, I think that everything should be built in and yeah, you want to build it in uh, for many different reasons. Even if it's um, something that's not really part of the system, which is risk control, uh, that's fine. You should have it built in mm. and uh, apply it consistently, even if it's going to be once every few years. But um, like I said earlier, I think um, if you're in a drawdown or if you're losing money, you know, you should reduce your trading size and trade smaller. But not if you're up 40% for the year and then now you're down 5% on the day. You're up 35% for the year. You're fine. Yeah. Let that open trade equity uh, do its thing. It's not fun. It's going to scare you. Be bold. <clears throat> but in a period where you are stringing together a lot of losses and there's not a lot of open trade profit, uh, you, pro you, you, know, you should have a reduce your risk of ruin or your, reduce your risk of getting to a worse drawdown uh, due to a lot of losing trades and figure out uh, how you're going to tackle that issue of trading, being defensive. Uh, I've done it many times over the years, and I've always made these cutbacks within days of the low, and it's mm. never worked to reduce my performance. That's uh, doing non-system trades, whether it's something that your friend advises you to buy or sell or introducing uh, this type of money management. It should reduce performance. Uh, 
because it's a non-system trade. But you may still have to do it in order to preserve your capital, be around for the good markets. It's just another rule. And, you know, we can add rules we feel makes us sleep better. Um, nothing wrong with that. Final question, actually probably a question uh, for me, but I, I you know, uh, definitely want to hear your your comments as well. And and um, George goes on, in episode 23, Neil says, Don doesn't use stops. Traditional trend-following Kretos says, use stops. Why doesn't Don? Well, I think the answer here is that we look at reducing trades or risk um, just in a different way. So we use the, the signal of the of the trend to uh, to exit uh, instead of just having kind of a um, you know I wouldn't say an arbitrary number uh, as as the stop, but but once we get uh, lower confidence, lower signal strength in in our positions, then that's when we reduce the position. So in some ways you could say maybe we don't look so much uh, at things as a trade by trade thing, but more in terms of exposure to a ter- to a certain market based on the number of sub-models we, we have. Um, and I don't think it's that different from having, you know, many different, uh, say, uh, price breakout models with different stops for each. Uh, we just do it differently. And partly also because we use value at risk as being our measure of risk. Um, so we're not vault targeting, even though I talk about adjusting positions uh, on an ongoing basis, but it's because we use value at risk as being the way we manage our risk uh so that um, that that has that effect. Um, so I don't think there's anything. Um, I mean, so we're not tra- doing anything that you know violates um, trying to cut your losses and and let your winners run. It's just a different way of implementing it. Um, so yeah. Any thoughts, Jerry or Moritz, on this particular topic? Yeah, I agree. I, I look at it on a trade by trade basis. Yeah, and I think uh, the commandment here is not to use stop losses it's to take small losses right so if you have a systematic approach a robust approach that takes small losses i think the stop losses is sort of a topic that's shouldn't be very controversial yes no it doesn't i don't think it really matters a great deal um i set my stop loss at a certain level but then when i run the back test um, without a stop loss, my average loss is my stop loss level. <laughs> right. So yeah. it, we're taking small losses and we're diversified and we have longs and shorts. So I think that's, uh, I think it's not a controversial subject. I'm fine with, sure. with them or without them. Sure. Cool. I've seen people get incredibly exercised by this and make a big point of point of it I, but i don't think it's much there's much there i think if you don't use them if i didn't use them i may have to um at some point in time have a rule that says hey i'm on the defensive here i'm losing money let's get out of a lot of our losing positions sort of a discretionary rule maybe but uh not a big issue i don't think what do you think moritz i agree with all that i think you uh you can uh, reduce that that risk in a, in a couple of ways, you know, stop losses being one of them. I, uh, I use them. So, um, uh, well, I like them, but, uh, just like you guys said, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, the secret is in keeping the losers small and letting the winners run for as long as they can. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that's what the dumb system's doing. That's what they've been doing for the last 45 years, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. George, thank you so much for your questions. As always, we enjoy debating them. Um, I'm going to go through quickly performance. If you think about anything else you want to bring up before we wrap up, uh, in the meantime, uh, let us know. So uh, again, these numbers are as of Thursday evening. I think Friday was uh, okay uh, in terms of performance, but I don't have the numbers just yet. But anyways, the uh, BTOP50 index up 1.89 for the month of uh, March, up 0.62 for the year. Uh, Stock Gen CTA index up 2.07% for the month, up half a percent or so uh, for the year. Stock Gen trend index up three and a half, strong month, up 1.02 for the year. The short term traders index up half a percent, uh, more or less, down 2.2 for the year. And the bridge alternatives index up 2.65% for the month, but still down 1.79% for the year. Um, I also want to acknowledge Walter. Walter, thanks for sending in the question. Um, it's a question for a guest that I hope will be a future guest. Um, so um, so hopefully we'll, we'll get to that question at some point. We've uh, reached out to... Uh, to the person in question, Walter. So we'll see what happens there. And as I said before, got a great guest coming up next week, um, Jesse Felder. So by all means, check out his blog already and uh, send us some questions. Um, Moritz, Jerry, anything we should um, talk about before we end? Happy trading, everybody. Happy trading to you. Higher is better. <laughs> Higher is better. Great. I thought you already changed your slogan. <laughs> no, 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 I forgot what I changed it to. Yeah. <laughs> we need to write it down, Jerry. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, thanks so much for um, listening in. As I said before, just um, you know, keep the questions coming and make sure you subscribe to the podcast um, to be sure to get all the new episodes. I will mention, I will do a little plug today for a conversation that I released part one of uh, this week. A conversation with three volatility experts, um, Chris Cole, uh, Dan Stone and Matthew Sargason. Um, really interesting conversation. You'll get uh, part two in this coming week, but uh, make sure you catch part one um, as well. And if you want to give back something to us uh, as you listen to this, just share these podcast episodes with a like-minded friend. That's all we ask for. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to The Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.